Hello everybody and uh, welcome to the 136th edition of the Frank and Stan chat and uh, those of you watching on video will, will see straight away that we've got a, a friend, a colleague, uh, Professor Mel Ainsko is with us this morning. Hello Mel. Hi, nice to be with you. Where, where are you based at the moment? Where Where is this nice place that you're in? Uh, well, I my, my home is in Manchester, but because of social reasons, sometimes I'm on the south coast. So I'm on the south coast today. Right. Uh, and it's very cold. Yeah. <laughs> Although so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, we were talking before about those little houses behind you, which uh, um, yeah. are sometimes filled with uh, alcohol, I think. Yeah, they're, they're part of I spent a lot of time for many years traveling internationally and uh, I use KLM, the Dutch Airlines, quite a lot. And uh, if you go business class, which I do if somebody else is paying, <laughs> they present you with one of these little uh, Dutch houses. And so I've got quite a collection of them and uh, they each have some balls gin in them. Oh, I've never been tempted to open them. That's my little commercial for KLM. <laughs> Well, it's great to have you uh, with your little houses this morning as well. So, how are you? How are you, Stan? Uh, okay, a bit of a cold. I can't seem to shake off. Um, but apart from that, uh, finished shed building yesterday, so um, no more DIY. Well, oh, sorry, that's that's not true. I'm building the shelf unit next week for my son and his wife, and redoing the bathroom at my daughter's in the next few weeks. Right, right. Apart from that. Fine. <laughs> yeah, and and just a little update. We don't we don't normally do these sort of domestics, Mel. But my brother Barry, who was uh, an HMI in Wales, who lives in Swansea, was has been well, still is quite ill. But I'm pleased to say that he's home, um, and uh, I'll be calling him later today. So uh, he's been a guest on Frankenstein chat a couple of times, and as uh, was very interesting sort of views about assessment and stuff like this, which I think Stan and I agree wholly with. Mm. For, well, I spent three very happy years working on a, uh, a national, what was called the Schools Challenge Cymru in Wales, and we worked with 40 of the most challenging schools and did some great work there, uh, I thought. Uh, but of course, we had a change of minister, and then of course, the project was the previous minister's project, and so it was sent off into the long grass. That's part of the story of my life. Usually, eventually, <laughs> I've got something interesting going, and it gets it gets put into the long grass because there's a change of policy, you know. But there you yeah. go. that's the real world that we're in. You know? Well, I think one of the uh, I believe that Mark Drakeford has watched our Frankenstein chat as we were talking to Barry about the changes that they've made in the curriculum in Wales and uh, the relationship they have between what remains local authorities and uh, the profession. So uh, it was quite an interesting discussion. Anyway, Mel, I mean, can, do you want to just introduce yourself to those out there who perhaps don't know who you are and how we're connected and the stuff that you do? Well, I'll give you the short version because despite my youthful appearance, I'm quite old. Um, <laughs> um, briefly, my history was I was a failed art teacher. I worked in special education. I was the head teacher of a special school. I worked for the local authority, uh, a local authority as an advisor. And then when nobody was work watching, I slipped into the University of Cambridge where I worked for 10 years. And then now I'm at the University of Manchester, but I also have a part-time role at the University of Glasgow. And because of that biography, 
my work is very much working with people in in the education systems. Uh, obviously, I work a lot in the United Kingdom and have done, of course, for many years. But I've also been very fortunate in my life because for the last 30 years, I've worked as a consultant for UNESCO, which is the main UN organization uh, concerned with education. And I've worked very much on their strategy of what they call education for all which is very much about notions of inclusion and equity. So in a sense, it's all one project in my head, but I have the good fortune uh, as to sort of learn from people who are trying to put that project into, into uh, effect in various parts of the world. And I guess the external stuff internationally gives me other perspectives yes. to look again at what we're doing here in the United Kingdom. So I, it is one project, but one side of it uh, helps me to understand the other, I suppose. You've been to, I think, Portugal and Chile, is it? I mean, I, I, we haven't chatted about this beforehand, but I think well, it was Portugal. Well, um, uh, well I, I was in Chile recently. I did a keynote uh, presentation for the International Congress of School Effectiveness and, and, and Improvement. And I talked about what I'd learned from international experiences in relation to the development of, of more more inclusive schools, really. Uh, I mean, the motto I used, which was part of, uh, in, in 2017 for UNESCO, we uh, I brought together a group of international experts. And we produced a guide, uh, which is a guide for ensuring inclusion and equity in education. And the motto that's in that guide, which is available on the UNESCO website, completely free, uh, is, is a quite simple one, but it's, a, it's a, the essence of everything I'm, I'm working on. It's simply this. Every learner matters and matters equally. So that's my principle that, in a sense, guides all my work. Now, I was fortunate last year that I was invited by OECD, who I don't normally work with, to say, uh, because they wanted to do a review of education policy in Portugal. And I'd been working in Portugal for a long time, so I, I knew a lot of people already. So a group of us spent time interviewing people in the country, but then we also visited a series of schools and met with teachers and pupils and families and so on. And I think I came to the conclusion that Portugal is possibly the most inclusive education system in the world. Now, I, I hesitate to say that because, of course, there's no perfect system anywhere. Yeah. This know, is the Mel Aisco League of Equity. <laughs> yes, it? yeah, it'll be good for their tourist industry, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, the, the story briefly is, for 20 years or so, successive governments have been driven by the idea of inclusion and equity. 20 years ago, they closed all of their special provision and they moved all the resources into the mainstream. Wow. Wow. Subsequently, the policies that have developed have created a kind of very inclusive philosophy of their education system. Uh, to give a few features, which are quite significant, all the schools work in clusters. So there are area clusters that work with the local community. School directors, as they're called, are elected for four years by the community, including parents and children. And after four years, they may be re-elected for another four years, but then they're finished. So they're, they're, they're always on a kind of temporary contract. And to be honest, they don't get paid a lot of additional money. So what you've got is this sort of sense of a system which is committed to the local area, mm. where the purpose is to get all the children to go to the local school. And the vast majority do. I mean, there are inevitably there are some private schools, particularly in Lisbon, uh, but it's a very small proportion, really. So I, I'm not suggesting we could lift Portugal and bring it into the UK. We certainly can't. The circumstances, the history and so on. Uh, even the wine is better in Portugal, you know. But uh, <laughs> what you can say is... Things can make, things have moved forward. You know, we, we look at these examples and say, well, look what they're doing. That's a challenge to us. Where are we on this journey? 
you know, where are we in terms of educating all of our children effectively? Well, frankly, particularly in England, I think, we're, we've gone backwards over the last few years. I mean, yeah. we've seen a massive increase in the numbers of children out of school, um, mm. some of whom we don't even know where they are. We're seeing a massive imp- uh, increase in various kinds of separate provision. I have to say, what yeah. do, you know, what, people might like the sound of this, but it's a segregated arrangement. That's the nature of it. Mm. Whether it's a special class or a special unit or a special school down the road, we've seen an increase in all of that. So the rest of the world is moving in an inclusive direction. Every learner matters and matters equally. And I think we, over the last few years, have gone backwards. Right, right. I mean, I think uh, the point you made, though, there was, it's obviously um, the governments of Portugal have committed to this, haven't they? Successive governments. Yes. And have have they changed politically in terms of one party to another? There's another dimension to the story. And if you you Google uh, uh, OECD, there is a big report. It's rather long and tedious. But I've also done a couple of blogs on it, one for the Fabian Education. If you want to read the blog, you can find that. Another feature of Portugal is, you know, they have the regular PISA tests. Mm. Yes. Well, on the PISA tests for the last few years... Portugal has increased its performance in terms of language, science and maths every time they've done the testing. Now, they're not top of the league, but all the time they're improving. So the argument I put to people in the field is the evidence seems to be that equity is the pathway to excellence. If we want an excellent education system that serves all children, then we have to pay attention to every child, you know. Every child matters and matters equally. And if you look at the most successful education systems as measured by PISA, you know, the usual ones are Finland, Canada, Estonia, which is rather unusual, South Korea. All of them pay attention to all children. All of them are preoccupied with the progress of all children. And the argument is, if you particularly focus on those children who we're not reaching at the moment, the changes you'll introduce will benefit everybody. Now, yeah. I think that's counterintuitive for many people in our country because of our history. But I, that, that, in a sense, that's my central argument wherever I go. I, 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 sorry, Stan. I, I was just going to say, Mel, you said before about sort of lots of projects that you've done that, that some get finished, some the, the budget changes or whatever. What what's made you, What's the one that you look back on and think, that that's the one that sticks in my memory for for what I managed to do or what we managed to do. Well, uh, two responses to that. First of all, when I was in Cambridge, I worked with a wonderful group of people, many of whom became household, household names in our field. Um, and we set up a project called Improving the Quality of Education for All, IQEA. We actually had, we got into a bit of a commercial difficulty with IKEA, in fact, who got very upset. <laughs> but eventually what we did, we worked with groups of schools, first of all, in, in, in the, the wider London area. But then this, we, we, we widened the project internationally. And in a sense, that, that experience shaped a whole series of other projects, some of which are still going on today. And at the heart of those projects is the idea of building collaborative inquiry, action research, if you will, into schools. So typically what we do, we set up groups of uh, uh, schools that want to work together. We get them to set up a a staff inquiry team. And then coming from the university, we support and work with them, as well as trying to evaluate their learning. So I've worked on a whole series of projects like that, and I am now. Uh, I mean, possibly the most interesting one I'm working on at the moment is in Dundee. Uh, yes, so Dundee is a very interesting city, very challenging circumstances. 
and uh, the, the 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 leaders of the local authority have taken this big decision that they're really going to go for including equity. We work with a team of us from the University of Glasgow, and we call the project uh, "Every Dundee Learner Matters," right. which is in the, in the second year of, of that development. And every school and every nursery in the city is involved in a process of collaborative inquiry. So that, in a sense, wherever I go, whether I'm fortunate, I've just finished a project in Uruguay, for example, or whether I'm in Dundee or I'm in Manchester, it's the same model. And it, it was born of that work all uh, 30 years ago in Cambridge. So. Is it, is it one thing for me is um, uh, understanding um, or the use of the term equity. Yeah. It's really interesting I, I, because... Um, it's one of the the uh, aspects of a cooperative education, and when I've raised the word equity with teaching staff or or uh, school staff, there is a, a genuine lack of understanding about what that word means. Yeah. yeah. So I found um, because for me on my journey uh, of of better understanding what I'm about and what we're trying to do, I think I've I've had to. I've had to question my my understanding of what equity means, and 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 actually, I felt as though for much of my career, I was sort of playing a bit of the equity card, you yeah. know. And it's not a card you can only play a part of, is it? No, You've no. Got to play and, the whole of the card, and it, it is a dip- difficult and elusive concept, really. And of course, there's an enormous amount of academic literature about it, which I wouldn't want to be tested on. But uh, I mean, clearly, meaning is crucial to educational change. I mean, you know, Michael Fullan's great argument was the meaning of educational change. And that's why so many innovations fail because there are so many players Mm. and everybody has to have a common understanding. Now, how to achieve that in a school, how to achieve that in a local area, how to achieve that in a country. And that's why I think I I try to avoid jargon. Phrases like every learner matters and matters equally tries to reach out uh, to people. Because I cl- clearly getting a common understanding is, is, is crucial to educational change. Just to say, uh, going back to your original uh, uh, question, Stan, uh, the, of course, the other great experience, which was life-changing for me, was uh, uh, 2007-8, I was invited to be the chief advisor for the Greater Manchester Challenge. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that built on the London Challenge, which was led by Tim Brighouse, a close friend of mine. And uh, we worked for three years with all the schools across the 10 local authorities of Greater Manchester, using a similar thinking about how do you move knowledge around within schools, between schools, and crossing the borders of the 10 local authorities. Um, so that, And of course, we, we had the added benefit that we had £50 million pounds of government money to spend, <laughs> which was quite handy. And it's a bit of a flaw in my argument when I try to <laughs> say to people, shall we do something along these lines? <laughs> But I mean, it was a wonderful experience, and the developments that occurred in Greater Manchester at that time are still continuing. Yeah. It's interesting. I've been working, you know, I chair a committee in, in Greater Manchester about education, and uh, much of what goes on is relationships that were developed in the past, including the period, the three years period of the City Challenge, uh, which are the basis of moving things forward. I think that's the other thing that politicians find it very difficult to understand. They have a time-limited project, whatever it is, three years. They put the money in. They want results because the election's coming. And, of course, usually they're disappointed because nothing happens very much in three years' time. But then go back three years later, maybe ten years later, and you realise people have continued. You know, Mm. it's no longer the project, but the relationships that were established by those projects are often sustained by key individuals who say, we've got to make this make, make a difference in the future. 
Yeah. I mean, this is why the whole area of educational change is so fascinating and confusing and difficult, really. Yeah. I can remember being very envious living in Greater Manchester, but working outside of, of Greater Manchester, watching the uh, the Manchester Challenge and, and its impact on, on friends and colleagues who were, were teachers yeah. in, in yeah. Salford and Manchester. Well, what it, what it kind of what if what it kind of revealed yet again is the untapped potential that's there within the education system, yeah. and I mean that's my possibly my greatest worry about English education policies over the last you know twenty years really. I'm not making a political point, but always it's centrally directed mm. by people who are well intentioned, very smart people, ministers, politicians, civil servants. But the least qualified people in the business, yeah. whereas the people who are qualified, not just formally qualified, but have the expertise, are the teachers in the classroom. If you're going to bring about change, the answer is teachers. And again, if you go back to the most successful education systems, in those systems, teachers are highly valued. They're well qualified. They continue to have professional development experiences through their lives. They may not be very highly paid, but they are valued in the community. And of course, it's them that will make a difference. As far as the children are concerned, the teacher is the policymaker. Yes. Just yeah. what the government says, or even the head teacher. When the door is closed for the next hour, the teacher is the policymaker for the children. So that's why if we're to make progress, we we'll have to really concentrate on valuing teachers and supporting teachers. And again, I think that's what have been one of the big failures uh, of the English education system. And currently, of course, the crisis about uh, initial teacher education. Well, it's, we don't, we're going to pay the price of that. Yeah, today. we've had uh, Professor Rachel Lofthouse on here and also oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Sam Twistleton as well. Um, and... This is playing out big time um, for uh, a town I, I'm, I'm working with at the moment in Blackpool, where um, the skit, the Blackpool and Fylde skit, judged to be outstanding um, by Ofsted, failed to be accredited. And um, there's a, there is a, a philosophical uh, discussion going on within that skit about you know the, 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 what they stand for and why they're successful they don't believe can be delivered in the same way with the new uh, accreditation rules. Right. And, and in a way, it gets to the heart, as, as Rachel was saying, I think, that you know, the universities need to have that sort of level of independence, you know, that inquiry. Yeah. Um, and it yeah. feels as though the uh, accreditation process is, is restricting yeah, those elements, which actually yeah. make you wonder why are universities continuing to do it when actually they're well, restricted in such a way? That, that is a worry. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the darker side of this is, is the worry that universities, particularly the Russell Group universities, may decide that education is no longer important. Mm -hmm. If they are not educating teachers, what are they for? I mean, it's <laughs> like saying you'd have a medical school that doesn't educate doctors or a law school that doesn't educate lawyers, you know. I mean, for me, we have to revisit teacher education, initial yeah. teacher education and professional development, because that is the key. Yes, I, I think we, we've just completely damaged yeah, it. I, mean, I would say in my, in my career, there's, I've been involved with and, and chair of two skits that both worked fantastically hard. Um, my worry was the move to school-based training yeah. Yeah. That, that, in my view, and it's a personal view, yeah. trains teachers to work in that school. Yeah, yeah, and doesn't prepare them for the school uh, and the school even down the road, let alone in a difficult area or a wealthy area. No, no, that's right. 
No, I, I spoke recently because of a, pro, a research project we're doing to the leader of a, of a, part, a school partnership, and he, he also has a mat, and he's also, it's also a, a teaching school alliance. And it, it's pretty obvious that they are cherry-picking the best teachers for yeah. their own schools. Yes, yes. Whereas you say, the school down the road, which most needs the best teachers, won't be part of that equation. I mean, yeah. it's all part of the overall market approach, which is fundamentally flawed, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. If you have a system that's based on competition, you know, it makes people try harder. But by definition, it creates winners. And the only way you create winners is by creating losers. Yeah. Now, that might be fine in the Premier League or in the shopping mall, but we can't have an education system that's deliberately designed to create losers. <laughs> well, well so I think, I down think, to assessment on that front, can't yeah. we as well at GCSE yeah. and A-level and what have you? Go on, Stan. I was just going to say, people are competitive as long as they think there's a chance of winning. Yes, that's right. Because the, the moment you think there's no chance of winning, then then yeah, there is yeah. no competition. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well, I have to say, I mean... I. I feel like saying, well, let's not bother with the what's caught your eye this week, because actually this has been brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, but in order to satisfy, we've done this in every single episode, so let's okay. do it now uh, and try and do it a little bit more quickly, because we've actually spent over, which is great, over 20 minutes chatting about uh, about all of this. So uh, what's caught your eye this week, Stan? Well, I think it follows on, because uh, what Mal was saying about Portugal, um, I, I was looking at the white paper and the fact that it's it's disappeared, and in reading something from Schools Week, it did strike me that it said, um, you know, since March 22, which isn't quite a year ago, we've had three prime ministers, five education secretaries and four four school ministers. And you think, how can there be a continuity of plan? How can there be a long term view, which, in my view, is the only way of setting out where we go with education? Mm-hmm. It, it has to be joint party, in my view, and it has to have a long term plan. Because at the moment, we've got schools who don't know which part of this white paper have been shelved, which parts are going ahead. Um, The 32 and a half hours is causing some concern in schools. And I've seen the report there that says DFE says they're hoping schools are working towards it. What, I I think half an hour a week? I think think the issue for me, Stan, is that I think that there's a lack of confidence in the impact of these white papers, you know. So the next white paper, how do you convince the profession that this is actually going to be delivered? You know, so you know, I, I really do think it's a fundamental weakness here now that that actually people are just going to say, well, it's probably going to ro- I've just sit tight. It's going to roll away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, half of this probably won't happen. Don't know what the half is that will happen. So Passive resistance, wait. Frank, my favourite way of getting rid of things. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. What's caught your eye this week, Mel? Well, about this week, but for quite a few weeks with a group of my colleagues at the University of Manchester, we're, we're doing a study of area partnerships. Um, and the study is uh, on behalf of the Staff College, which uh, provides professional development for education officers. And it has the support of the Association of uh, uh, what are they? Children's Directors of Children's Services. So we've, we've, we've been looking at uh, some examples what struck me is the more we look, the more we find that there is a kind of explosion of attempts to coordinate at the local level in order to address what we talked about earlier, the yeah. dangers of the marketplace. Now, they're very, they're extremely varied and mixed. And to be honest, quite a few of them are just talk shops. And I don't over, over, underestimate that because 
having school leaders having the opportunity to talk to each other in these yeah. difficult times is not a bad way. But I think the best examples, and we've we've looked at a small number of examples that are really making a difference, both in rural areas and in urban areas, are pointing a way to the future where we can start to see in which within a market-led system, there is coordination at the local a local level. And in our report, we'll, we'll give some suggestions of what that might look like, possibly with one eye on a, on a new government who might yeah. want to look at and with the, more the idea of what, what we're really talking about is a new kind of uh, middle tier, if you will, yeah. which is mainly coordinated by teams of school leaders, but has implications for the role of the local authority, not the resurrection of the local authority as the control uh, yes. management uh, uh, organization but has the uh, as the organization which has the big picture which facilitates yeah. but also acts as the conscience of the system such that if things are not working well through the coordination they step in and say well we're still overlooking this group of children or this school that's in difficulty and so on so i think i think we, we might be pointing the way to something which is quite doable it, it's not it's not it's, in one sense it's not radical but it, but it implies a, a, a willingness of government to trust people at the local level, recognising that context matters. Mm. The, the, the barriers that some children experience in one place may be different to the barriers that children are in another place. So you need statistics, of course, but you also need intelligence. You need insider knowledge. And God bless them, the people in Westminster can't have that. So I think that that's where I think we should be heading. And I'm hoping our report will make a small contribution because there's a, there are other teams are doing research about all of this as well. So I think we're seeing a, the, the explosion of quite a lot of information and the kind of work that you're doing, Frank, in, in Blackpool is another example, I think, yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of the potential of all of this. But it will, it is, it seems like a simple idea, but in terms of national policy, it's radical because governments mm. are going to have to, free up a little bit and recognise they cannot dictate and control things from Westminster. They tried it and it doesn't work. I mean, the opportunity areas were a wonderful example of that, weren't yeah. they? They were described as area-based. I think there were 12 of them, weren't they? And mm -hmm. the, when I looked at the plans for the 12, they were all more or less the same. Yeah. Well, <laughs> They're the same priorities. So the idea of area-based development is it's got to be local. It's got to be analysed in the local context by people who understand what's going on. And so it will look different in different places. It's a, it's a quite complex kind of process of change. I think one yeah, of the... I think, Mel, the, the key, one of the key things in that, from my experience of get, trying to get schools to work together, is that facilitation of it. Because yeah. it's got to be facilitated by by somebody that the schools trust. Yeah, yeah. And quite often that is the local authority. Not to run it. But no, no, that's right. The hub that that pulls it together, and yeah, yeah. because yeah. whenever we've, whenever I've tried it, it, it's normally suggested that a particular school, a teaching school, a, a this school, that school, run yeah. it, and immediately that there's resistance from other schools, yeah. Yeah. and there's there's not that level of trust. Where, yeah. I mean, a university would be another alternative. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I agree with that. And I think the idea of of, of these kind of local partnerships being evidence based. Yeah. Words, they're a kind of action research approach to the local context uh, you know yeah. so i mean there, there, there are good examples up and down the country that we need to learn from i think mm -hmm. and hopefully a new government might be open to this kind of uh, what is really radical thinking but actually doesn't require a lot more resources it's actually no. making better use of the resources that are there yeah, yeah i agree i mean i think covid i mean it, certainly in blackpool covid broke down all the barriers everybody mucked in and yeah. uh, 
There was a, there was an infrastructure for collaboration, which actually the Blackpool Opportunity Area um, and the location of civil servants in Blackpool made a massive difference. And it, it, there wasn't a lot of money, but actually the money that came was enough for heads to pop the heads out of their uh, schools to think, oh, if we collaborate a little bit here, we'll have some of that money. And actually, that was quite good oiling of the system. And I think what we've managed to do now is is I, I am an independent chair of that board. And I act on behalf of Blackpool children. And, and actually, it's quite useful to be able to say and also to the head teachers for them to see I'm challenging the local authority here. It's not all negative on you. Know, on you. You know, if there is an issue here, the blockage, uh, it may be around special educational needs, whatever it may be, you know, actually being an independent voice, speaking on behalf of yeah. myself and others, I think that's a useful mechanism. And, and, and it, uh, our research has pointed to people like yourself who are taking on these roles in different parts of the country. It, it's a bit of a worry, of course, is because... There aren't that many people around who have the no. time and the expertise to do that kind of work. So Steve Mumby does that. I think Steve does that in the northeast for a couple he, of the He was telling me that last week. Yeah. yeah. Was, uh, and I think that there is a we do chat, Steve and I, and uh, Diane Heritage does similar work in uh, North Yorkshire, yeah. um, because actually we probably need a little bit of networking. To, yeah, that's right. I'm making yeah. it up as I go along, really. You know, but... Well, um, Christine Gilbert and Estelle Morris have established this association of partnerships, and both of them, Christine uh, uh, acts in a similar role in Camden and uh, Estelle in Birmingham. So uh, the, these are all kind of subtleties that we're learning yes. from trial and error, which mm. could be the basis of quite a, a serious reform, I think. I agree. And what's caught my eye this week was uh, uh, I've, uh, I was in Liverpool yesterday, um, with regard to the PEIA there, and and also in Blackpool because we had our sort of uh, meeting um, of the heads and local authorities and the other sector partners, and uh, uh, the deputy director um, in Blackpool, I'll give him a, a call out here, Paul Turner, uh, has undertaken. I think he's doing a master's or a PhD or something, but he's actually sort of getting into. Um, factors that impact on on learning and and in a way he's trying to discredit a little bit the free school meal sort of indicator and trying to give the nuance which actually i've been very keen on this contextual value added the contextual elements need to be extended out and and he's finding sort of some very strong indicators which nobody wants to really talk about <laughs> you know and some of those relate to uh quality of housing um, central heating in the home, all of these uh, are different yeah. indicators that can be used to link yeah. into how well children are doing in school. And, and I think it's it, it's heartening because Paul presented to um, civil servants this week and they were very receptive to it. You know, that, and, and I think that we need that sort of bit of local research, whatever he's doing, is, is extending beyond him and the work he's doing in his and, research. And going beyond statistics. You see, I think I think we overstate the power of statistics. Uh, I mean, research methodologists would always tell you every method has its strength, every, every has, has, uh, has its weakness, and what you want is more than one method. So qualitative evidence, intelligence, is what helps you to understand. You see, the statistics tell you what things look like, yeah. but they don't tell you why. It's only the in insiders who can tell you why is it like all of that. And so I think that's how, how we learn to be kind of active researchers in the field, in practice. I mean, a, an example comes to mind, which was a very different type. There was a very interesting school in, in Manchester that I visited some years, a secondary school. And the head was showing me around in a quite tough area. And uh, all around the school, he had these beautiful photographs of kids 
uh, doing various things. And, and I said, they're interesting. And he said, oh, yes, cost us a fortune. And I said, well, why, why do you have them? He said, well, I was talking to a social worker. And I said, when you go to a home, how do you know that it's a loving, caring home? And she said, well, we, a lot of the homes I go to are in pretty bad shape. But if there are photographs of the children around the house or the flat, I take it that there is a love in that home, you know. And I mean, it's a kind of almost sounds like a trivial story. But yeah. and that's what, so he said, I'm going to have photographs around our school to show that we have love in our school community. Yeah. And stayed with me. That was <laughs> the, I think uh, what you'd have to watch with your central heating, though, is the is the unforeseen circumstances, wouldn't you? Because yeah. if that if that became, I know it was a very simplistic model, but if that became an indicator there'd be families saying, well, we, we don't have central heating put into our house because we'll lose all our uh, our benefit. It'll cost benefit. us more. Than... <laughs> I think it's interesting, though, that the point Noel was making, um, we we hosted the, a visit from Rachel Sylvester for the Times Education Commission in Blackpool. And uh, Rachel phoned me up a few months later saying that somebody from the department, uh, the Treasury, was asking, you know, why is it, why does it appear to be harder in Blackpool than it is in Newham? Yeah, you know, that's yeah. what they're asking. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I said, Rachel, I could get into all the detail of this, but actually clearly the person who's walked, who is asking the question has not actually walked from Newham into the city and yeah. from the outskirts of Blackpool into the Blackpool tower. You, yeah. you know, in effect, you, you know, the, the issues that are impacting on young people and on adults are on that journey, which if you yeah. go with your eyes open, you can see the difference, you know. Um, and and, and the, the underlying thing also, which uh, was something I, I became very much aware of in, in Ofsted when I was there, but it was, I, I wouldn't say that I was slapped down, but probably not enough emphasis was given was to the educational attainment of adults and carers who are looking after children. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, there's a significant difference between the quality or the these um, qualifications that adults have in Blackpool compared to what they have in Newham. Um, and, you know, we, we, it it was a very, it felt to me like one of those really sort of the question that Rachel's, well, it wasn't Rachel's asking, but it was the treasurer asking, you know, revealed that sort of deep lack of understanding. And when you get knocked back and you think, uh, hang on a minute, you know, surely, surely you understand that, you know, but it was one of those moments where clearly they didn't. Um, but anyway, not making any excuses, just trying to do our best. Um, Mel, we have one final slot, which is um, if you could change one thing, um, it, and you can spend as much as you like Matt, on this, but if there was one thing that you wanted to change within the system, what would it be? When you say the system, you mean the English system? Yeah, the, well, yeah. Well, it could be. I mean, we've never had anything that's looked a little bit more wider than that. But yeah, yeah. I know. Well, no, well, I, I mean, uh, I, I, I would probably apply wherever I would go in the world. Sometimes I, I, I get uh, invited to speak to senior civil servants and sometimes occasionally even ministers in various parts of the world. And usually in my presentation to them, I say to them, look, I wouldn't have a policy for inclusion or a policy for equity. You know, Once you have a policy for it, it's uh-huh. somebody's job. The notion of inclusion and equity, as I've defined it, every learner matters and matters equally. It's not a policy, it's a principle. And it's a principle that has to inform all policies. The curriculum, teacher education, assessment, the budget, everything has to be informed by that policy. And, you know, that was what takes you forward. And I think that, you know, in practical terms, 
since 1988, the Great Reform Act, we've never had a debate about what the purpose of education is in mm -hmm. England. And consequently, the purpose has been defined by test scores and inspection mm -hmm. reports. What gets measured gets done. Yeah. So I think what we really need is a debate about what is the purposes of our education system. And then the other reform would be absolutely crucial would be to look at the accountability system yeah. because we've fallen into the trap of valuing what we can measure. Yes. Yeah. And it's powerful. We've proven that, you know, it's the outstanding example in England of what gets measured gets done. So my argument would be is we would have to reform the accountability system in relation to the purposes of the education. And so in that way, we would me measure what we value. And, uh, uh, you know, that, that would be my overall argument for England or anywhere else, really. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, that's an well, that's fantastic. I have to say, we always say this, don't we, Stan? Mm -hmm. Guess like you on, Mel, and you think, gosh, you know, this is just a pleasure to, to spend, an, you know, 45 I'm minutes talking to you, really. To has. You. And, uh, um, yeah, we'd love to have you back, Mel, if you'd be willing to join us, say, sometime later in the year or early next year, if we're still rolling with these. I suspect we will be. Um, but anyway, thank you so much. And uh, thank you, Stan. And, uh, yeah. We have, uh, I think it's World, well, we've got, well, it's not quite World Book Day, but we've got Dan Worsley, the uh, the yeah. author, children's author, joining us next week. So uh, looking forward to that because he was a great guest last time. And actually what happened was, just as an aside, uh, schools who couldn't get authors uh, for their World Book Week um, actually used our video uh, okay. and, and cut the bit of the video where Dan was talking about how he creates his books and what have you. So... Uh, we'll have that in mind so that we can uh, schools can use yeah. that uh, next week as part of their World Book Day uh, celebrations. So anyway, uh, hopefully all being well. We'll see everybody next week. And uh, thank you very much for watching and listening. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Thank you very much. Bye.